Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing, and we'll work to be done at uh, quarter till, ten till. All right, let's pray together. Our Lord, we praise you that we are instruments in the hands of the Redeemer. Teach us more of what that means and how to do it. We pray in the name of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Okay, let me... You're going to get a handout in a moment. Uh, we... Well, I thought we had one more. Does anybody else need a copy of the book? We had a couple of extras. I think everybody's set. You are going to want to read chapters 2 and 3. I'm going to just fly over chapter 2. Chapter 2, In the Hands of the Redeemer, is... is, That's the title of it, In the Hands of the Redeemer. And... um, Let me highlight a few things, and then we're going to spend a little more time with chapter 3. Okay, so Paul Tripp, speaking about counseling, says God has a toolbox. What do you think is in the toolbox? Anybody read the book? What's in the toolbox? You are. You you are God's tools in the toolbox, as he put it. God transforms people's lives as people bring his word to others. And so listen, listen to Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 11 through 16, which is kind of the, the theme of the whole book in many ways here. <clears throat> he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, or pastor teachers, to equip the saints for the work of service, really, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're growing together to be like Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather, now listen carefully, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body Now, see, this is corporate language. The whole body joined and held together, that's the church, by every joint with which is it equipped, is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, this is the point he's making. The body grows as each part does its work. And in the church, sometimes there's a need for professionals beyond one another But in most cases, we minister to one another in the body as each part does its work in the physical body. But then he adds, there's more. Transformation comes as people bring God's word to others. And and Paul Tripp, he speaks of God's monsoon. What's a monsoon? Yeah, a monsoon is a heavy rain. It's a storm. And a monsoon always brings some kind of change in the, uh, in the environment. So Isaiah 55, verse 10, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, think California, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. We're to bring God's word to others. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I said it. 
For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn, which came in because of the curse, shall come up the cypress. Cypress wood is virtually indestructible. Instead of the briar, shall come up the myrtle. That's Hadassah. That's a tall, evergreen tree that's beautiful and fragrant. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. What is he talking about? God rolls away the effects of the curse by his word. Begins with forgiveness, begins with pardon, and then with purification as well. Now, how do you do that? How How do you bring God's word to others? Now, this is interesting. Tripp says, don't use the Bible. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, you use the Bible in need-driven, self-focused, solution-defined ministry. What's the Bible about? Ten ways I can improve my prayer life. Six ways I can improve my marriage. Five principles for listening to music. That's not what the Bible's about. That would be using the Bible in a way that we should not be doing in counseling. Rather, as he puts it, tell and apply the old, old story. Pages 26 to 28, he deals with that. And he speaks, now if you don't know what rebar is, you can ask Socrates, or you can ask Joe, or you can ask uh, Mike Matone. Uh, Rebar basically makes firm concrete, okay? And and, uh, Tripp says God has, has three parts to his rebar. One is God's sovereignty. We sang of it. Oh, Father, you are sovereign. Nebuchadnezzar confessed it after God dealt with him, as did Job. The point is, God is accomplishing his plan with everyone. That's what Esther's about. So God's rebar. Number one, God's sovereignty. Number two, amazing grace, or what Tripp calls rightly the economy of grace. Now listen, listen to what he says In pages 32 and 33, he's talking about a marriage counseling case. Communications broken down between a husband and a wife. The wife's desire is to rule over the husband. He's a tyrant toward her. They don't want to talk to one another. It's a mess. And so that's what he's laid out here. But what he says is God's grace is most powerful at the moment of our greatest weaknesses. How practical and life-changing is this? Think of our couple. One of the most significant problems in their marriage relationship is that there is no economy of grace. With all their obvious difficulties, what is most shocking is the profound gracelessness of their marriage. There's no willingness to look within and confess deep-seated sins. Remember, that's the beginning of liberation. So they never find sweet forgiveness. There's no vertical hope to carry them in dark and discouraging times. There's no rest that comes from entrusting each other to the God of grace. There's no faith that he will give them all they need to respond to each other in godly ways. And as a result, their relationship is reduced to human demands, human performance, human failure, human judgment, and human punishment. There's no hope or power for change. And because they are not daily, listen to this, soaking in the fountain of God's grace, they don't extend grace to one another. 
all of their marriage books, communication skills, and attempts at reformation will fail because their only true hope is God's heart-transforming, relationship-revolutionizing grace. When they begin to rely on that grace and extend it to each other, the foundations of their present economy will crumble and a foundation of grace-infused, God-empowered love will grow. Only in the economy of grace can the biblical principles for healthy, maritable relationships bear lasting fruit. And boy, I, I can't say it better than, than he does. So God's rebar, amazing grace. And that's true, incidentally, for all social reforms. But that's for another day. Three, God's rebar. God's sovereignty, amazing grace. And I love the way Tripp puts it. It's not your party. Of him and to him and through things are all things. To him be the what? Glory, Glory both now and forever. And this is what Tripp writes about that. Sin makes, this is, this is his turn of a phrase, sin makes us glory thieves. There's probably not a day when we do not plot to steal glory that rightfully belongs to the Lord. When we compete with one another for glory, we fail to experience the unity that can only be found when we join together to live for the glory of God. At the bottom of a broken marriage, a shattered family, or a forsaken friendship, you will always find stolen glory. We crave glory that does not belong to us, and we step on one another to get it. Rather than glorifying God by using the things he's given us to love other people, we use people to get the glory that we love. Sin causes us to steal the story, God's story, and rewrite it with ourselves at the lead and with our lives at center stage. We're going to come back to this in the next chapter. That is always destructive. God dashes idols. You make an idol of yourself, you'll destroy yourself. And you may not realize it right now, but you've been hearing about that in the news all week long. But, but we'll come back to that. But there's only one stage, and it belongs to the Lord. Any attempt to put ourselves in His place puts us in a war with Him. It is an intensely vertical war, a fight for divine glory, a plot to take the very position of God. It is the drama that lies behind every sad earthly drama. Sin has made us glory robbers. We do not suffer well because suffering interferes with our glory. We don't find relationships easy because others compete with us for glory. We don't serve well because in our quest for glory, we want to be served. But the story of Scripture is the story of the Lord's glory. It calls me to an agenda that's bigger than myself. It offers me something truly worth living for. The Redeemer has come so that glory thieves would joyfully live for the glory of another. There's no deeper personal joy and satisfaction 
than to live committed to God's glory. It's what we truly need. Living for God's glory would revolutionize the marriage of the couple we've been considering by completely redefining their agenda, and I would add, by redefining all of our agendas. So, so the glory of God. And he ends with chapter 2, A Life Worth Living. He says, our goal is to help one another live with a God's story mentality. He says, our mission is to teach, admonish, and encourage one another to rest in his sovereignty rather than establishing our own, to rely on his grace rather than performing on our own, and to submit to his glory rather than seeking our own. This is the work of the kingdom of God. People in the hands of the Redeemer, daily functioning as his tools for lasting change. So God's got a toolbox and you're part of it. Okay, which is why we're covering this. Now, oh Joe, I'm so glad you're standing up. <laughs> because you and Nan are going to distribute these. Okay. Okay? I'll walk the back of the room. <laughs> okay. All right, here's what we're going to do. <clears throat> I'm not going to do this with every chapter, but at least uh, with some of them, I'm going to give you handouts because we just cannot uh, cover everything we had like. And if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Now, this chapter is called, Do We Really Need Help? Do we really need help? And so he says, let's begin at the beginning. You all have a handout? Great. Anybody else need one? Okay, so follow along. I'm going to make a few notes, and then we'll have time for your questions and comments, okay? Genesis 1, 26 to 28. God said, let us make man, and that means man and woman, in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them. And God blessed them. Now listen, this is before the fall. God spoke to them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And he goes on in speech. But that's, that's enough for our purposes. Adam and Eve, in your notes, were created to be revelation receivers. We're, we're, made, we're made for a GPS, folks. We're made for someone to guide us through life, and that's God, and he does it by his words. And as Tripp says, our need for help preceded sin. We were created to be dependent. And, and folks, that's why the term independence should kind of grate at you. None of us is independent, okay? Everyone is dependent upon God, all right? 
And he says, Adam and Eve were created to be interpreters. They were to name the creatures that were there, and they were to have dominion over the earth. They were to converse about this. They were created to be interpreters. And as Tripp says, we not only interpret situations and relationships, we interpret ourselves. That's why we need a framework for generating valid interpretations that help us to respond appropriately. You've got to have a way to understand this world. Okay, Now, all facts, folks, come with a certain interpretation. And when I say something to you, I hope it's factual, but the choice that I make, the way I express it, the words that I use, they give an interpretation to the facts. All facts are interpreted facts because they come through an interpreter. But you still need a GPS so that you can understand yourself and others. Human beings, he says, are by, in, the, in your notes, by their very nature, are worshipers. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. Stolen worship is what is at the core of what is wrong with fallen human beings. Stolen worship is idolatry. And our culture has mastered idolatry of self. And God dashes idols. Now, now let me... Let me give you an illustration from, if, if you pay much attention at all to what's being reported, I didn't say the news, but what's being reported. There's all kinds of accounts about teen girls' depression. A World magazine, a World News Group, had an interview with John Stone Street, who heads uh, the prison fellowship ministry. <clears throat> He's quite a social commentator. And the, and the one speaking to John Stone Street, John Eicher, says this. this. This is scary. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released a study that found almost 6 in 10 teen girls feel persistently sad and hopeless. And that rate is twice the rate recorded for boys. Over the course of the last decade, that persistent sadness and hopelessness has risen almost 60%. And the same study found also that a third of teenage girls in 2021 considered killing themselves. Now, I imagine it's more than fair to lay some of this at the feet of our social media platforms. But let me read a bit of what Allie Beth Stuckey wrote about in World Opinion. She wrote this. It's not just the overt messages teen girls are receiving via their phones that are dragging them into depression. It's the implicit message that all of them carry, which is that we are our own gods. This goes on, and I'm quoting still here, a popular response to this new study will likely be that we need to teach girls how to love themselves more 
to have more self-care and more self-empowerment. But what if that's exactly what's killing them? What if it's not just social media itself, but the self-idolatry it represents? I mean, think Facebook. That's self-idolatry. I'm going to be the center of it. I'm not saying Facebook's wrong, but you see how easy it is. I make myself the center of attention. I had two Twinkies. I got an upset stomach. I, 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 I had to vomit. I, who cares? But, but see, it's, I'm the center of attention. That's really driving teens into feelings of purposelessness and depression. So, he says to John Stone Street, how do you answer these questions? And this is the director of prison fellowship, very interesting social commentator. He says, I think she's right. I do think that it's not one thing, it's everything. And I think that the untethering, listen, I think that the untethering of almost all reality from anything fixed, anything certain, anything predefined with good good and evil, but I do think in a very real way, these, is John Stone Street, these, these are the inevitabilities of modernism They are the inevitabilities of trying to create a world without God. Now, whether that's an overt atheism, or whether that's kind of a God as your own personal private friend secularism, either way, you're untethering the universe from any defined realities. And pretty soon, this kind of godlike complex that we have to define morality and define reality and now increasingly to define everything becomes less of a joy and more of a burden. Now, I think there's more to it than that, but I think that's not a small part of it. I mean, those of us who are older, you really want to be part of a world that's a merry-go-round going 250 miles an hour? And what was true yesterday is not true today. And what was a fad yesterday is not a fad today. What was thumbs down yesterday is thumbs up today. You really want to live like that? I submit, if you're a young person and you're in that world, that figure is probably low of people tempted to commit suicide. Okay, so quoting Tripp again. You cannot understand the world of personal ministry without Genesis 1. It explains what our need for help, help that, that, that need for help is part of our design. That's not a result of the fall. Human beings need truth from outside themselves to make sense of life. We need God's perspective to interpret the facts of our existence. If it is true that all human beings are constantly trying to make sense out of life, well, then all of life is counseling or personal ministry. Counseling is the stuff of human life. We are always interpreting. We are always sharing our interpretations with others. This sharing ultimately amounts to advice or counsel about how to respond to life. Now, that's true completely. I want you to know there's either good counsel or bad counsel. 
There, there is either right counsel or wrong counsel, but it's always going to affect people. I'll give you an illustration from this week. Once again, speaking with a woman, she's at another state, you wouldn't know who she is, she was referred to me by Jen Greenberg, brought up in a hyper-legalistic home from her from infancy, where she was basically, she put it, brought up in an environment of fear where her father was also the pastor, and the mother was also very controlling. Arranged marriage, because you don't date in that culture. The mother and the dad had a word from the Lord about who she was to marry. Your words from the Lord, folk, come from the scriptures. She marries him. Finds out not long after he's a pornography addict. She musters enough courage to go to her father pastor and say, what do I do? Here's the counsel. You're not giving yourself to your husband enough. You're the reason he's doing this. That is absolutely wicked counsel. Now, if a woman doesn't give herself to her husband, can that tempt him to sin? Sure. And that's got to be corrected. When you sin, it's your responsibility. But that warped counsel still affects her. So, so we're all counseling, but the issue is a good counsel or bad counsel. Is it wise or unwise counsel? Um, okay, now, second, the entrance, okay, here we go to this trip. The entrance of another counselor, and that's Genesis 3, 1 to 7. It's good to listen to this because it really happened in history, but, but go back in history and this is what happened. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I didn't say that. God said, you may eat of all the trees of the garden except for this one. But notice how the devil twists things. Did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. He didn't say that. But she added it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You'll not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the saw, saw she lived out of sight, that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. The entrance of another counselor. Satan, writes Trip takes the very same set of facts, the things God said to Adam and Eve, but gives them a different interpretation, different twist. Satan was offering a different path to wisdom, holding out the promise that people can discern life on their own. The serpent, writes Tripp, is selling Eve the most attractive and cruelest of lies, the lie of autonomy, self-government. 
and self-sufficiency. I did it my way. I don't need any help. He offers her wisdom that does not need to bow the knee to God. This, writes Tripp, is the core of all foolishness. The core presupposition of fools that there is no God and they don't need his revelation. That's why, folks, we have such a foolish culture, quite frankly. And you don't say that with pride. You say it with a broken heart. Now listen to what Tripp wrote in 2002, 20 years ago. Now, 2002, we live in a world with thousands of voices, now it would be millions, that interpret life and compete for the allegiance of our hearts. No wonder we're confused. We wonder we can't think straight. These voices tempt us because they appeal to one sinful, deluded desire first felt in the garden. To be out on our own, to have it our way, to answer only to ourselves, and to find life somewhere other than at the feet of the Creator. Meditate on that. Realize the folly of trying to live pushing yourself away from the God who made you and gives you every life and breath? I mean, that's ultimate foolishness. And that's why I love the way Nan, well, when she talks about evangelism, she needs God. He needs God. Yes, they need Jesus. They need to know who God is first, right? And so that's what he's getting at. Now, finally, saved but still needy. And this is Hebrews chapter 3 and verses 12 to 13. Hebrews 3 and verses 12 to 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This is dealing with the covenant and its external form. Those who are marked out as the Lord's people. He calls them brothers. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, this text, folks is a classic example of why you never take the ministry of the gospel out of the category of essential work. Again, we were told, beginning of the pandemic, well, there's certain essential work, which I guess included liquor stores, because they got kept open. Church, not even mentioned. I submit to you, that's, that's... probably the driving reason why we have these kinds of problems with young people and everybody else. Because the essential work of ministry, the Word of God, encouraging and exhorting one another, even though it's not always done the way it should be, at least as an attempt at it, that, folks, ruined two years of our national life. Okay, saved but still needy. A fearful, all-too-common pattern, and you see it in this text. Sin that leads to unbelief, 
that leads to turning away, that, lean, that, that, that goes to a hardening of hearts. Again, this is what our culture is right now, the big challenge. People have gotten out of going to church. They don't think they need to go to church. And you see this, a turning away and hardening of hearts. And that's why we need the daily ministry of fellow believers. Exhort one another, as long as it's called today. On the cross and in the resurrection, Christ broke the power of sin over us. Died in Christ, sin shall not have dominion over you. You're not under law, but under grace. But the presence of sin remains. Remember, reigning, dominating sin. Outside of Christ, that's the case. Remaining, indwelling sin, that's the case in a believer. Since each of us still has sin remaining in us, we will have pockets of spiritual blindness. The Hebrews passage clearly teaches that personal insight is the product of community. I need you in order to really see and know myself. Wow, boy, that's powerful. Otherwise, I'll listen to my own arguments, believe my own lies, and buy into my own delusions. My self-perfection, my self-perception is as accurate as a carnival mirror. If I'm going to see myself clearly, I need you to hold the mirror of God's word in front of me. And Paul Tripp is a minister, so am I. That's even more true of us. That's why we need the ministry. Ministers do too, of their own congregation members and others. So quoting Tripp, and then I'm going to have a little PS and then we can discuss this because a lot here. He says, I need to wake up in the morning and say, God, I'm a person in desperate need of help. Please send helpers my way and give me the humility to receive the help you've provided. And I need to pray further. Lord, make me willing, make me willing to help someone see himself as you see him today. That's the Holy Spirit's work through you as a helper. The paraclete, he comes close to you and ministers to you personally. And so you are God's instrument for that. As Christians who still have pockets of spiritual blindness, we need two character qualities. First, we need the loving courage of honesty. Now, that was the Lord's Supper message today. We need to love others more than we love ourselves, and so with humble, patient love, help them to see what they need to see. Second, we need the thankful humility of approachability. We need to forsake defensiveness, be thankful that God has surrounded us with help, and and be ready to receive it every day. I mean, folks, that's the book in a nutshell. There's a lot more to this. Now, let me add this. I want to give you a horror movie as we end. You ready? The horror movie is the horrible danger of self-deception. The word deceive or deceiver deceived is, is used very frequently, especially in the New Testament. Satan is the great deceiver. He's the deceiver of the whole world. That's the way he's described in the book of Revelation. Revelation. 
The state can be a deceiver. The beast in the book of Revelation, Babylon in the book of Revelation, deceives. You don't think it does? Let the state tell you that the way a person lives out of his or her gender identity doesn't make any difference. That's already being shown as deception. When you're having doctors who've done the sex change operations get sued by men and women who realize it didn't change their hearts. And again, that ought, that ought to make us be broken hard. But see, deception that comes. There's many deceivers that are gone into the world, John says. They don't confess Jesus is the Christ. The world is a deceiver. We are deceived by the things of the world. But here's what's scary. Self-deception. James chapter 1 and, and verse 26. Notice the length of the tongue and deception. James, James chapter 1, actually verse 22 and 26. Be, James 1, 22. Be, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. If you know you're to be different in light of what the word of God says and you don't change, you are promoting your own self-deception. Very specifically, people say, well, there ought to be an altar call in every worship service. You don't need an altar call. You're always calling people to faith and repentance, Christians and non-Christians. And if we're not believing and repenting, then we're deceiving ourselves. But this is what gets scarier. Verse 26, notice the connection of the tongue and deception. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Mm. Now, I don't want to take away the main point about the fact that the bridling of the tongue is the measure of true religion. But look again at this. There's a connection between what we say and whether or not we deceive ourselves. If I am living in known sin, and I in one way or another speak such that that is condoned, coddled, and encouraged, I am my own instrument of self-deception. And biblical counseling is in no small measure ripping off that mildewed burlap bag of self-deception and saying lovingly but boldly, you live like the way you're expressing yourself, you're deceiving yourself, and you will destroy yourself. I mean, that's how serious... See, this business of truth, the church needs to be bound by truth. Why, why are you so, so niggling about the church always being about the Word of God, it's because, folks, it's about truth over against self-deception. That's why. Okay? So, anyway, the only antidote to that, as I put it, and then we'll, your questions. One, as I mentioned at the Lord's Supper, Judgment Day Honesty. 
don't coddle your sin or let me do the same. Judgment day honesty. And number two, Christ. I come before Christ. That doesn't mean you've got all your questions answered. In fact, the more you know Christ, the more questions you ask. But you come to Jesus because he's the truth. And you're honest. I am lost. I am lost and I'm in a forest and I don't know how to get out. I don't know what's up. I don't know what's down. I don't know what's east or what's west. Jesus is the way. And be honest, I'm dead. By nature, I am dead in my trespasses and sins. Jesus is the life. And that's why you've got to have biblical counseling, folks. Okay, so, so the chapter, do we really need help? You bet. We all need it. Okay. All right. Well, questions, comments, uh, debates, arguments, whatever.